Very grateful for the worship this morning. Thanks to all who led us in that time. It's great to be back together. And it's great to have those of you who are joining us remotely as well. Uh, If you have been here the last couple of Sundays, you know we are walking our way through a text in the second chapter of the book of James, and we're talking about putting away prejudice, racism, discrimination, injustice, inequality. And folks, let me just let me just preface what I want to say today by this. I know this is not an easy topic for us to deal with and wrestle with, and I know some of us may come at this issue from slightly different perspectives, nuances, things like that. I need to ask you something this morning, if I can. Would you be willing to extend me some grace? as I deal with this topic. I just, I just want to ask you to give me some grace. Uh, this is a topic we have not dealt with in the church nearly to the degree that we should have. It's emotional. There are different ways of looking at a lot of these issues. But I am convinced and convicted that not dealing with this has not done us one bit of good. So hopefully looking at it from a biblical perspective and within a biblical framework will give us a handle on some things, not just that we can learn, but that we can do as the people of God to bridge the racial divide and to see God begin to do a new work in our midst as a nation. Now, I've, uh, if, you've, if you have your message guide with you this morning, I, I didn't list all six of these uh, principles that, that I've been giving you each week. I just didn't have room. I had a lot of stuff I needed to say right down on the message guide. I didn't want to overwhelm you. There's probably some more stuff I need to give you. But we've already looked at the first two principles as it deals with prejudice and racism. The first one being that those actions and attitudes are absolutely incompatible with a genuine belief in a glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Can't say we love Jesus and harbor attitudes of prejudice and racism, discrimination toward others. The second thing that we looked at is the fact that the presence of actions or attitudes of prejudice and racism indicate the presence of evil, evil. It's an important word. James uses it. Evil thoughts in my heart and in my mind. Uh, Racism is not just the result of the way we might have been brought up, folks. It is of satanic origin. It is evil, and we need to recognize that. Well, this morning, I just want to jump right in to this third reason why we need to put away prejudice and racism, and I just want to say I'm excited about this one. Of all the things I probably could share with you, this to me holds the most potential, and for me, raises the greatest excitement about what God may be able to do uh, within the church of Jesus Christ to make a difference in our world. And that, that reason is this, prejudice and racism, those things ignore the reality of the divine economy. They ignore the reality of the divine economy. Now, I want you to look with me at verse 5 of James chapter 2. 
And let's read this text together. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word or in the message guide. James' writing says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Now, I need to make a couple of uh, important caveats here, and these are really, really important. What we're doing in these Sundays together is we're talking about and we're dealing with racism, prejudice, and discrimination, not poverty. James is talking about poverty here, but there's a reason for that, and we'll talk about it in a minute. So let me make a couple of statements. Please don't hear me suggesting this morning that I think there's some kind of correlation between racism and a person's economic status. Okay, please don't hear me saying that. And also, please understand, I am not equating poverty with a particular race. Okay, I, I just need to, I need to make sure we understand that this morning right out of the gate. James' emphasis here in chapter 2, the first 13 verses, is, is on show, the sin of showing favoritism, prejudging others, assigning a value and a worth to someone based upon that person's outward appearance. Uh, he's talking about the sin of extending privilege to some and discriminating against others based merely upon the way a person looks. So that's what he's talking about. Now his particular illustration here focuses on the different ways a rich man and a poor man were treated in the church. And again, just based upon the way they looked. If you go back and read verses 2 through 4, you'll see that the rich man was described as wearing fine clothes and gold rings. The poor man was described as being shabbily dressed, or some translations say in filthy clothes. So th this is James' particular illustration. That's the illustration. But there, folks, there is a principle here that transcends this single illustration, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. Okay, and it has to do with the divine economy. It has to do with what things have real value and eternal significance in the eyes of God. That's what I mean when I talk about the divine economy. So James, seeing this kind of favoritism in the church, says to those first century Christians, and he says to you and me today, Watch this. Hey, guys, beloved, beloved brethren, hey, I love you, James is saying. He's not trying to beat up on anybody. He's not angry. He's saying right out of the gate, can I tell you that I love you? My fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but because I love you, because I love you, I need to point out something to you that you're missing I need to point out to you a divine principle that you are ignoring. And here it is. Look at it again in this verse. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? 
Now, if we're going to deal with this text correctly, I do need to deal with this specific illustration James is using here. So let me, let me say about a, a word about how we relate to the poor and God's economy there because there is a tremendous lesson to learn here about that. And then we're going to take that lesson and we're going to apply it to inequality and prejudice and uh, racism as it concerns a person's ethnicity or skin color. Now, when James says God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith, to be heirs of the kingdom he's promised to those who love him, you might say, where did he get that from? Well, he's not just making that up. He is really quoting the very words of Christ as we find them in Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Look at that verse if you have your message guide pulled up. Jesus is speaking and he says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now that word blessed, blessed are you who are poor, that word blessed means happy. It means fortunate. It means to be congratulated. Now, I want to say, whoa, what in the world's going on here? Are Jesus and James somehow celebrating poverty? Well, absolutely not. We ought to all be doing everything we can to fight against poverty. They're not celebrating poverty, but they are celebrating something else. I want you to listen to me a minute. Let me give you a reality to consider. God often and deliberately chooses those who are poor in the material realm to be rich in the spiritual realm. Let me say that again. God often and deliberately chooses those who are poor in the material realm to be rich in the spiritual realm. Now, did you know that? I mean, just you see this all throughout Scripture. Now, that does not mean does not mean that someone who is rich materially cannot also be rich spiritually. It's just sometimes a lot harder for us. You see, Jesus referenced the poor many, many times. I've, I've listed some verses there for you in Luke. First of all, in Jesus' inaugural sermon, look, look at what he says. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to who? The poor. And in Matthew chapter 11, one of the evidences that Jesus gave for his Messiahship, one of the evidences that he gave to the disciples of John the Baptist to carry back to John because John was asking the question, are you really the Christ or, or do we need to be looking for somebody else? One of the evidences Jesus gave that he was in fact the Messiah was that he was preaching good news to who? The poor. God often and deliberately chooses those who are poorest in the material realm to be richest in the spiritual realm. Do you know why many of us are poor in faith? Do you know why many of us are poor spiritually? 
It's because we got credit cards. I want you to think about that. We got credit cards. That's right. When we've got a problem, when we've got a need, and we don't have the resources, we, we pull out the plastic. See, we're not used to having to depend on God because we got American Express. But if you're poor and you don't even have a credit card, then you can't depend on American Express. You've got to depend on God. You've got to trust God. You've got to walk close to God. And you've got to believe God's going to come through for you when you have a need. Because I tell you, if you're poor, you don't have anything else. And let me say something else to you. Please don't misinterpret it. I'm not sure that you've ever really seen real Christianity until you've seen it in the life of a person who is impoverished but who loves God with all of their heart. When I served as your missionary in Latin America, one of the most impactful convicting experiences I ever had took place on the wind-blown slopes of a snow-covered volcano in the Andes Mountains of central Ecuador. I stood for three and one-half hours in a freezing cold cinder block church and watched and listened to 200 Quechua Indians praising God and worshiping Him with all of their heart. Many of those men, women, and children did not have on shoes. Listen, I was numb from the waist down. One of those folks gave me one of their ponchos, and I was a little bit warm from here up, but I, I couldn't move my legs. That's how cold it was. Many of them had no shoes. Most of them were not wearing adequate clothing. And few of them had eaten what you or I would consider to be a decent meal. But as I stood there listening to their singing, listening to their worship, listening to their testimonies about the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God and the sufficiency of God, I knew I was standing on holy ground. And I sensed perhaps for the first time, certainly in a way I had never sensed it before, ever, that God has granted to the poor of this world a different kind of riches, the riches of faith. And James says here, when you discriminate against the poor, and we do it all the time, let's talk about pulling up the red light and that guy sitting there saying, I'm out of work, or... You know, I need food, or we roll our window up, or we look at somebody who's down and out, and we, well, that person doesn't want to work, or et cetera. We could go on and on and on. James says, when we discriminate against the poor, when we look down on the poor, dismiss the poor, shy away from the poor, he says, when you do that, you're showing real spiritual ignorance of the divine economy because God does some very special things among people who are poor. Now, I'm going to tell you a truth right now, and I want you to hear it carefully. 
We cannot afford to have just middle class and upper class people in this church. We cannot afford to have just middle class and upper class people in this church. This is why part of our ministry needs to be going out and sharing with people out there, bringing people in who may not be able to make a great contribution to the offering plate. That's why we need to be sharing the gospel with the poor and the disadvantaged and the destitute and the displaced and the disparaged in our community and our society because we need to learn what it means to be rich in faith. And a lot of us don't know what it means. So, what does all that have to do with racism and discrimination? Thanks for asking that question. Because we need to answer it. Now, you're going to have to stick with me here because... This may seem a little convoluted for a little while, but if you'll hang in there with me, I think you're going to see where we're, where we're going, and hopefully and it's, it's, a, it's a very exciting place. I need to take you on a quick tour through the Bible, so let's review the great sweep of, of Scripture here for just a moment. How many, how many individual books in this Bible? Anybody know? 66. There are 66 books in the Bible, but... They're not individual books with individual stories and just individual messages. No, this is all part of one story, one great sweep of Scripture that runs from the opening verses of Genesis all the way through to the last verse in the book of Revelation. There is one plot line. There is one single message. There is one big story. And if we're going to understand the Bible at all, we've got to understand what that one big story, what we call the meta narrative of Scripture, really is. Now, let me present the Bible to you this way. And I, I wish I had room to, to put all this in the message guide. If it's something you would like, I'll, I'll put together something else and we'll get it out there to you. But the Bible, like any good book, has three parts. It has an introduction, it has the main plot or storyline, and it has a conclusion, right? Any good book has that. Introduction, storyline, conclusion. Now, I, again, I didn't put this in your message guide, so just try to hang on to these three things right now. The introduction of the Bible goes from Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 11. That's the introduction, Genesis 1 through 11. The main story begins in Genesis chapter 12, and it goes all the way through to the book of Jude in the New Testament. Genesis chapter 12, all the way to Jude, which is the next to the last book of the Bible. The conclusion is the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. So you got that? Okay, introduction, Genesis what? 1 through 11, main story. Genesis 12 through Jude, and the conclusion is the book of Revelation. Now, we're going we're gonna to look at that in, in, in just a minute in a little more detail, but before we do, let me give you what I believe is the thesis statement of Scripture. In other words, if I could somehow take 
the, the entire message of the Bible and condense it and boil it down and give it back to you in one single sentence, I, I'm going to give you what I think the best thesis statement of Scripture is. And I'm, I'm indebted to a guy by the name of Bob Shogren for helping me see this years ago. This is not the only way to explain it, but I think it's the best way. Here's the thesis, the message, central message of Scripture, and that is God receiving greater glory, God bringing greater glory to himself by creating diversity and then uniting that diversity in Christ. God receiving greater glory by creating incredible diversity and then uniting that diversity in Jesus Christ. Now, let's go back to the beginning and let's look at the introduction for just a moment. After God created man and mankind, what was the first command that God gave to people on the planet? If you have your message guide, you can see it there in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where God, it says, God blessed them, people, Adam and Eve, their descendants, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the seas and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God gave mankind a command. Fill the earth, multiply and fill the earth. Now let me ask you a question. If man had done that as God had commanded him to do, what would have been the result of man multiplying, spreading throughout the earth? What would have been the result of that? The result of that would have been diversity, the emergence of incredible diversity. I want you to think about this for just a minute. Over hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of years of man being all over the world, incredible diversity would have developed. Some people would have lived in mountainous areas. Some would have lived along the coast. Some would have lived in temperate climates. Others would have been in cold climates or hot climates. There would have been different foods that people ate, different clothing that they wore. There would have been different vocabulary that developed because of the different things that people dealt with. So over the course of time, there would have been different dialects and different languages to emerge if man had obeyed. But man did not obey. If you come to Genesis chapter 11, look with me beginning at verse 1, and let me read some of these verses here. Instead of filling the earth, multiplying and filling the earth, man decided he would stay in one place. Look at this. Now, the whole world had one language, one common speech, and as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So in other words, man, instead of obeying the command in Genesis 1.28 to multiply and fill the earth, what did they do? They decided to settle in one place. So there was no diversity. 
There was one language. There was one common speech. There was one culture. And because there was no diversity, there was no us and them. There was just us. And the people with this one language and one culture did this, Scripture said, to what? Make a name for themselves instead of exalting the name of God. Instead of making His name great, they wanted to make a name for themselves, and they just settled down right where they were, one language, one culture, one people. And when God saw this, here we go again, right? Man has once again rebelled, just like before the flood. But God had promised not to destroy the world again with a flood. So he didn't, but he did something. You see, God's design for diversity, if it wasn't going to come about by the natural process of people filling the earth spreading out across the planet, if it wasn't going to happen naturally, then God was going to have to make it happen supernaturally. And he did. This is what happened at the Tower of Babel. Look at verses 6 through 9 of Genesis 11. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. So come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth. That's what he said to do in the first place, right? But they disobeyed, so God is now dispersing them over the face of the earth. Therefore, its name, its location was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let, let me suggest something to you here, just something to think about. What God did at the Tower of Babel is often thought of as God's judgment, and it was, but from the perspective of God's greater purpose, it was not so much an act of judgment as it was God getting his initial plan back on track. Because again, the theme, the thesis, the central message of Scripture is God getting greater glory by creating all of this diversity and then uniting that diversity in Christ. So here, at the end of Genesis chapter 11, the stage is set. This is the introduction. You have God in heaven... And you have all these different nations and peoples on earth. And now the story begins and God begins to set in plan, set his plan in motion to unite all these groups for his greater glory by bringing them together and uniting them in Christ Jesus. And from this point forward, beginning in Genesis chapter 12, with the call of Abraham, remember that? God said, I want you to leave your, your, your home, your country, and your father's householding. Go to the land I will show you, and I will bless you, and you will be a blessing, and all nations on earth will be what? Blessed through you. And then we follow from Genesis 12, the history of the nation of Israel called by God to be a light unto the nations. And then we move into the New Testament 
and the coming of Christ and his commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, we come to the book of Acts and we see that gospel spreading out into the raw pagan world and different peoples and different cultures coming to Christ. And then we come to the writings of the apostle Paul. Just Can I just share a couple of verses with you from Paul's writings? Listen to Ephesians 2.14. He's speaking of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You understand that God wants to kill the hostility between the races? God wants to kill the hostility between people of different skin colors because he wants to unite us in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you, church, God's purpose is to take all this diversity that he has sovereignly created, these differences in culture and ethnicity, and unite it in Christ for his greater glory. That is what God is passionate about today. And we know that one day it's going to be accomplished Because when you get to the conclusion of this story, the book of Revelation, I've listed some verses for you there. Look at them. Revelation 5, 9, you're worthy, speaking of the risen Christ, to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 7, 9, and after this I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could number from every nation. And all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Revelation 14, 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth. To every nation, every tribe, every language, every people. This is what the Bible is about. This is what Christianity is about. And this is what the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be about. It is about allowing the power, demonstrating the power of the gospel to break down barriers, eliminate differences, eradicate resentment, and kill hostility. As God takes all of our diversity, all of our differences... And he unites us in Christ. And when that happens, folks, God gets greater glory. Now let me ask you a question. Can a church full of all white folk who are worshiping God and singing his praises, can, 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 can they bring glory to God? Absolutely. Can a church full of our black brothers and sisters praising God, worshiping him, Can they bring glory to God? Absolutely. But church, God gets greater 
glory. Are you with me? God gets greater glory. When all of our differences, and they are many, and they extend just beyond skin color, God gets greater glory. When people from every ethnicity and socioeconomic background are united together in Christ as one, praising Him, He gets greater glory. I don't know how many of you have ever had an opportunity to be part of multi-ethnic worship. Unbelievable. To stand next to someone who may be speaking a different language and whose skin color is different. God gets greater glory because the message of Scripture is God has created diversity because He wants to unite that diversity in Christ for His greater glory. So listen to me here now, please. Knowing this, it is a tragedy that the church of Jesus Christ is still one of the most segregated places in America today. It is a tragedy. Do you know that 95% of White Americans go to a predominantly white church. 90% of African-American Christians go to a predominantly African-American church. And this didn't just happen. This just didn't come out of the blue. Trace it all the way back to slavery. So should we not at least ask the question, why is the church still so segregated today? Is, is that not a question that is worthy of our at least asking? With all that the Word of God has to say about the power of the gospel, could it be that we in the church who should be most diligent about bridging the racial divide, could it be that we are actually contributing to the deepening of that divide every single Sunday? I mean, should we not at least ask the question? So, we've gone all this way around to come to this truth. Just like we cannot afford to have just middle class and upper class members in this church because we need to learn what it means to be rich in faith. We cannot afford to have just one race or ethnicity in this church because we need to be part of something that brings God greater glory. Now, I am very thankful this morning that we have some African American members in this church. We have at least some Asian members that I've met, and I think some Hispanic. But my church still does not look like my community. My church still does not look like my nation. And my church still does not look like the book of Revelation. 
So I'm asking you this morning, understanding what God's great plan and purpose is, would you dedicate yourself to helping to make Taylor's First Baptist Church a truly multi-ethnic congregation? Would you consider being the people God has called us to be rather than just being the people we're comfortable being? How that happens, I don't have those answers. It's going to take some dialogue. It's going to take us thinking and working with our African-American brothers and sisters, our Hispanic brothers and sisters, and doing some things we've never done before. And let me promise you this, it's, it's going to, if we do it, it's going to mean embracing some change. Worship may not look like it's looked before. Ministry may not look like it's looked before. But God has given to us, you and me, the church of Jesus Christ. He has made us both a sign and a symbol of His kingdom. We point toward the kingdom come, but we are a living illustration of what that kingdom should look like here on earth when God rules and reigns over the hearts of a people. And there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's how we kill the hostility. And nobody said it would be easy. But this book says do it. My dear brothers and sisters, as believers in a glorious Lord Jesus Christ, James says, stop. Stop showing favoritism and don't just stop doing something you shouldn't be doing. Start doing some things we should have been doing a long, long time ago. For His greater glory. Heavenly Father, we are grateful. For your word, even when it brings us to realizations in our own lives of things we may not have grappled with before. And this is true in a, in a gazillion areas in my own life, not just this one. And I pray, Father, that as you've extended grace to us, we would extend grace to one another. We would be willing to walk through the reality of a topic like this and look at what your word has to say and allow us to be molded by it. Allow our processes of thinking and reasoning to be massaged by it and changed by it if they need to be changed. And I don't know how this is going to look for me. I couldn't presume to say how that's going to look for any of my brothers and sisters in Christ gathered here today, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, God, we're trusting that as, as we seek to walk in obedience to your word, you're going to show us the way. So, Father, here's our hearts. Take it. Make it yours.
everything we have for your kingdom's cause is the prayer that we pray in Jesus' name. I'm going to ask you to join me in standing. We're going to sing together. If God's spoken to you this morning, you need to respond in some kind of public way. I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Maybe over the course of this coming week, God will bring something to your mind, some idea. Here's something I can do, or here's what our church consider doing this. You know, I, I told you, I don't have all the answers, but I know they're out there because I know what God's purpose is. And He wouldn't have given us that purpose if He didn't intend for us to walk in it, live in it, experience it. This is my desire to, to honor you. Lord, with all my heart, I worship you. If you need to respond this morning anyway, I'll be here to pray with you. The altar's open. There'll be staff members here right now as we sing. What does God want you to do? Would you do it? Right now as we sing.